Welcome to Sacred Realms. a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I am joined on this gorgeous Texas fall evening. I love it so much. I'm drinking stout beer. I'm smoking a cigar. This is like, this is my time. And I am joined on this uh, on this most wonderful of evenings by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. How you doing, Matt? I am equally fantastic, although not equally located, which is uh, a bit of a twist, a turn of fate, as they might say. Uh, the Rona has struck again, and uh, we have had to separate for a short period of time. So, uh, but alas, even though we are not co-located, uh, I feel like co-located might be a word. Like Lo- uh, loquacious is definitely you, a if word. You have it like, means like wordy. If you if if two people are speaking at the same time, is that co-loquation? If if they're speaking in an equally verbose fashion, I would say that is most likely co-loquation. Which really, you could describe our podcast as a co-loquation. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> co-loquation. Uh, but no, I am uh, enjoying. The weather on the patio of the parents' house, and uh, man, it, it just doesn't get much better than this. Uh, you know what, though, Lyndon? Uh, it doesn't get much better than the guests that we have, uh, one of those being with us uh, this evening. That would be your friend and colleague, Mr. Maximus Nichols. Uh, so we're glad to have him back on. It's, Welcome, Max. That's not Good his name. You again, my friend. That's not his name. Maximus, isn't it? No, it's, or was it? It's Maximum. Maximum. It's Maximum, Maximum Nichols. Right. Maximum Nichols. <laughs> Welcome, yes, Maximum yes, thank Nichols. You, thank you. Hello, Internet. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Hey, Max. We uh, are very happy to have you back on. Uh, of course, we have not spoken yet in this back half of Season 6 of Sacred Realms Pod. And, uh, you know, I think w- one of the things that's been sort of nice about the fact that these 8-bit games are um, a little bit shorter in length uh than the games we typically play um and you know also we're kind of condensing the games uh typically two dungeons to a week so they go by faster um one of the nice things about that kind of abbreviated episode length for the adventure of link is that uh we are able to kind of have um we're able to have a different guest on for each one and to have i think what is going to end up being a wildly diverse lineup of perspectives and opinions about this game uh and i can't wait to get into yours because just based on some of the chatter that i've seen from you to other people in our discord chat since we started this game um i feel like if nothing else your opinions on it are going to be quite a bit different from our guest last week which was of course <laughs> Josh from ZU uh noted number 1 Zelda 2 fanboy so yes yeah uh spoiler alert i am not going to have the same opinions as josh 
on the adventure of Link. I feel like most people probably don't have this, this the exact same opinions <laughs> as Josh on the adventure of Link. But that's uh, one of the great things about kind of analyzing these older games with a, a critical eye and kind of having to take into account the variation of nostalgia and, um, you know, every everything else that, uh, you know, people bring into their experience with these older games. So, um, yeah, they the, the opinions do tend to run the gamut. I have found so yeah that I actually I mean I listened to half of the episode Josh was in before here I didn't get through all of it but uh I mean listening to his his thoughts maybe tempered my own somewhat I will be slightly less spicy maybe than I would have been if I hadn't had Josh's opinions in my ears first well that's interesting because I'm coming into this episode feeling like I might be slightly less spicy than I was last week. So we're all just mellowing out over here. Or I don't know. I, Max and I are. I don't know about Matt. I am very much not mellowing out. Oh, <laughs> he's uh, he's got he's got some opinions. He's uh, he's feeling feisty over there. Well, we will figure out what exactly Matt means by that later in the episode. For now, Max, I want to ask uh, how you doing, man? What have you been up to? I'm doing well. Uh hunkering down in with from this wildfire smoke that you know permeates all of the pacific northwest right now uh but uh yeah i've been playing some zelda i'm playing some xenoblade i just bought a book that maybe i'll read i i never get around to actually reading much these days um rings of power is really good it makes me want to read the silmarillion for the i don't know 13th time or something uh, i love that book okay so <laughs> this is you see this is how we get two hour episodes uh is is all these fun <laughs> rabbit trails that we end up with i was talking to matt about rings of power the other day because i um i finished the season i don't know if you have max i have okay matt i think is how many episodes behind are you matt uh i the last one i watched was episode four Okay, so you've got like half a season left. So Matt and I both are also pretty big fans of the Silmarillion and the the Tolkien legendarium. Um, I think uh, I know that some people are are really down that rabbit hole. And I think for Matt and I about the about the densest that we really get with it is the Silmarillion. And then even then we have to listen to it on audiobook because it's a pretty uh, (laughs) um, it's it's a pretty girthy tome. but uh, love that story, and I'm definitely very familiar with it. And so for that reason, was kind of bringing a lot of our fandom of the Silmarillion uh, into this show. And um, I, I think kind of where Matt's at with it right now is that uh, he kind of feels – not to speak for him. He can correct me if I'm wrong, but he feels a little off-put by some of the changes that have kind of been happening um, to you know some of the specificity around lore and events and whatnot. And, um and I don't know, I, I'm kind of having the opposite thing with it. I'm, I'm actually really enjoying the show basically for the same reason that I enjoy the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, which is that I feel like it's a it's a very exciting and beautiful broad strokes adaptation of a much denser uh, novel. Yeah, uh, I enjoy it in the same way a hardcore Marvel fan enjoys the Marvel movies. Yeah, um, right. They're not the same thing. It's not a one-to-one adaptation of the thing that I love already. Um, although, honestly, I haven't read the book in like 10, 15 years, so I don't remember half of it anyways. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm watching it with my wife, who has 
not read the Silmarillion or any of the books other than the Hobbit. Um, and I, I finally, like, I'm sitting here the whole time, like squirming in my chair, like when some famous character comes on and like, Oh, it's, you know, I don't know. It's Celeborn. Um, and <laughs> wanting to like, just tell her why this is so important and so amazing and so cool to see on screen. And like, she does, she doesn't know, like she would not be as excited as I was, no matter how much I try to explain why it's exciting. Uh, so I'm kind of just like, I now know what it's like when those, like when I was in the, like watching a Marvel movie in the theater and somebody would like cheer <laughs> at a name and I'm like, Oh, comics fans. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm in that chair. Oh, but you're, so you're telling me that your, your wife didn't understand why you were like falling out of your seat when, when there were uh, black, <laughs> black flags flying over the, the Harbor of Numenor, for instance. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like sitting here trying to like, and I'm internally debating like which of these characters are going to become the Nazgul. Like, <laughs> right. <I can't>, she's, <laughs> she's not as interested in theory crafting on that front as I am. Does she enjoy it though? Cause I, I've been very curious. She does. That's, that's cool. I've been very curious how well this show was going to be able to catch on with people who have maybe like, I don't know, would say that they're passing fans of the, the movies, you know, and that's about as far mm-hmm. as it goes for them. So she's enjoying it, and she's only seen the the movie trilogy once when it was in theaters. Oh, so uh, she hasn't even so seen the the good versions. She's not even a passing fan of the movies. Like she thought they were good, and then she never thought about them again. Um, but uh, so even someone in her position is enjoying this show. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I. Uh, I have limited time to work like, with right now, so I kind of had to make a decision about whether or not I was going to keep up on a week-to-week basis with Rings of Power, House of the Dragon, or Andor. <laughs> um, and so I chose Rings of Power. I'm now catching up on Andor, and House of the Dragon will come after it. But we're kind of spoiled on on good entertainment at the moment, which is nice because, yeah. uh, <laughs> because you know, the world continues to be actually kind of a... <laughs> place at the moment but there's fun stuff to watch uh it it drives me a little bit more crazy every episode that she doesn't know who Isildur is she doesn't remember who he is and what he did or did not do uh, in, the, in the movie uh, uh, <laughs> Isildur! she was she was she was not there gandalf she was not there three thousand years ago you better use the audio cues here, Lyndon. Uh, those are harder <laughs> to find than you would think, honestly. But really? I'll try. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try. Okay. Well, cool, cool. I'm glad that we're. Uh, I'm glad that we're all finding stuff to uh, to watch that we're enjoying quite a bit. That's always nice to hear, Matt. Uh, you know, he'll. I mean, are you going to get caught up on it? I I really encourage you to do so. I will. It's great. Yeah. No, I will. I'll probably. I mean, it's crazy busy season for work, and obviously, you know been traveling a lot the last three weeks four weeks really and so i'm trying to i want to do it justice by watching it on a tv instead of on my phone uh that's part of the struggle and then i uh yeah because like part of the whole thing is that it's like supposedly a cinematic masterpiece like uh peter jackson's trilogy was and i've really enjoyed the cinematography of the episodes i've seen so far and i want to get the full experience so i don't want to watch it on my phone on an airplane um, and, uh, yeah, just finding time to sit down and watch all of that is definitely on my list of things to do. 
and I will be watching it through the end of season one at least. Gotcha. Yep. Good stuff. Totally. Your your reasoning checks out, and I. Uh, yep. I'm I'm totally aligned with you on your thinking. So we'll catch up on this at a later date. Uh, of course, before that happens, we have some other things to talk about. Other things that have been uh, diverting our attention on a week to week basis. Of course, that is the video game that we're here to talk about. <laughs> um, which, uh, yeah, is definitely something that we've all been. <laughs> have all had top of the mind for the last few weeks. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, maybe more so for you and I, Max, than for Matt, because we we played one or two games so far that Matt has not played. But definitely for myself, I think that the the games that we played in seasons one through five were all kind of in their own different way, comfort blanket experiences for me. You know, they're all... Uh, there, I, I have varying levels of nostalgia for all of them. It's a fun, it's always a fun time. Like I always feel very comfortable in those games. I never feel like I'm kind of on my back foot or anything like that. Um, not so the adventure of link. This is uncharted territory 100%. And I know that it's a very similar thing for you. So, uh, before we get into the sacred realms rundown, what I want to do is I want to do a similar thing to what we did last week with Josh, where I ask you, uh, I guess a little bit different question because with Josh, he's got a lot of historical knowledge and everyone knows he loves this game. But for you, um, kind of going down this rabbit hole with us for the first time, I, I want to figure out where are you generally at with the adventure of Link at the moment? Um, so I, uh, I played through to about the third dungeon which we're about to talk about. I won't, so I won't go into too much detail there. And I, I met a certain enemy uh, and I was save stating and rewinding and stuff. And I was having to do that a lot and having kind of a miserable time, to be honest. Uh, and my hands were hurting from rewinding so much and redoing the same actions. And I kind of, I put down the game and I was like, I don't know if I can keep playing this to appear on the podcast. Like, I don't know if I'm going to play the content I'm supposed to talk about. I might have to give Lyndon and Matt the bad news uh, that I rage quit Adventure of Link uh, in a huff. But um, what I did then was I found a uh, uh, an alternative way to play, so to speak, <laughs> that involved some hackery and a easy mode that was fan created uh, where I did... You know, more I uh, link does more damage, enemies deal less damage, and spells cost less. Would that be a three letter word that rhymes with bomb? It would indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have been playing that way, and I like it so much more now that the 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 super harsh difficulty curve is kind of alleviated. Um, like underneath that that brutal brutal balancing of the difficulty uh with punishing uh you know penalties for failure is a game that i do actually enjoy um and i i it feels a little bit more a little bit more like what i look for from a zelda game yeah um And, and so tell me again what uh in what ways is the difficulty lessened on the version that you're playing so uh link deals more damage okay um uh, maybe only with the sword, but I'm actually not sure if there's much else that does damage. I guess the fireballs. Yeah. Um, 
So Link does more damage and enemies do less damage to you. Okay. Uh, and uh, spells cost less magic to cast. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because um, I know that in the in the last episode, one of the things that I really commented on was that to me, the thing that was uh, contributing to my lack of enjoyment, uh, you know, minute to minute in the game was really the health system and the fact that there were no frequent health drops of any kind. And, and the fact that I felt like I was always kind of like running around at, at more or less like one hit to death, you know? Um, and I, I think what you're saying honestly kind of amounts to the same thing, at least in part, right? Where, you know, if Link takes less damage from enemies, then it, it really is just extending the amount of punishment that you can sort of take. Um, and I can definitely see where that would create a much more fun gameplay experience uh, because there is a really interesting kind of loop that happens in this game where, uh, you know, you you refill your health via magic and you're trying to scavenge magic drops kind of above anything else really um that's kind of your main thing that you're hoping to see um while you're kind of going through a dungeon and and you're kind of going from enemy to enemy and then once you get the magic drop you're just kind of waiting until the bar fills up enough for you to be able to refill your life again or whatever and um i definitely think that the combat on its own is difficult enough to where link could have been much more spongy and his magic could have Mm. been quite a lot Uh, His magic capacity could have been quite a lot deeper, and it still would have been an equally challenging – I guess not equally challenging, but it would have been – it still would have been a perfectly challenging video game experience without feeling as punishing as it it currently does. Yeah, there's there's a certain degree of – so when we think about game difficulty, there's a bunch of different axes of difficulty in any game – in any game. Right. Um, You know, like in Destiny, the game that we both work on, you know, you could say that one axis of difficulty is thumb skill. Right. Are you good at aiming? Are you good at jumping and dodging and moving, converting your thoughts through the controller into the character's actions? Um, And other types of difficulty might be stuff like, are you like social difficulty? Are you able to gather the, uh, you know, a fire team are or. Um, there's kind of like reading the situation difficulty. Like, are you able to quickly understand and get situational awareness of everything around you? And like, there's just a million, there's, well, not a million. There's a bunch of ways to break down difficulty like this. Um, and Adventure of Link, basically, uh, I don't think they did this, you know, after, uh, in a way like it, consciously, like I'm, about, I'm talking about it right now, but they basically um, ended up taking every axis of difficulty and just dialing all of them up to 10 at once. And that creates kind of this exponential feeling of uh, difficulty and punishment Um, where, you know, the fact that it's so easy to lose in a one-on-one fight over a few seconds with an iron knuckle. And it's also a starvation economy where you don't get health refills and you don't get that much magic um, and it's also a high penalty for failure because you lose your XP and you have to travel all the way back. Um, these things add up and kind of multiply each other to create a fairly punishing experience here. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting because I was thinking today, um, you know, I play quite a lot of indie games on my Switch and a lot of them are kind of in that faux 8 or 16-bit art style. And um, that isn't super material to the to the point that I want to make from an aesthetic standpoint. But with that tends to come a design mentality that's rooted in things that were established in this era, like when games like this were being created. But, the, you know, they've been heavily modernized, right? Like Shovel Knight is one that we've kind of mentioned every now and again um, that I think – you know, with the arrival of the the downward stab this week, this game is feeling more shovel nighty to me by the minute. Um, but uh, yeah. you know, you've got games like Shovel Knight that have a similar kind of uh, experience as this game, um, but have managed to modernize a lot of the more archaic, um, you know, kind of thoughts and feelings around what difficulty should consist of. Uh, the one that I was thinking of the other day was actually Celeste, which. Um, is definitely not like an apples to apples comparison to this game because you know Celeste is a is a pure platformer really and it doesn't have any of the combat or leveling or any of that stuff that Adventure of Link has but mm-hmm. what Celeste does have is a situation where each room that you find yourself in is punishingly difficult within the parameters of what the the gameplay is there are, you know each room for the most part is an is a very difficult puzzle platform experience and you're you know most people die a ton I, I die a ton in each room you know when i play that game but one thing that that game did that i think was so great was that it realized the difficulty was fun in and of itself and what we don't need to do on top of that is to add lives or game overs or anything that kind of even even further artificially creates frustration around you know, loss around like falling into a pit or whatever. Like in Celeste, when you die, um, you know, you can do that infinitely. And every single time you just reappear at the entrance to the room that you died in. And um, I don't know. I, I think that obviously that's something that never would have happened in a game from Adventure of Link's era, you know. Um, but I, I'm definitely glad that it's something that's kind of being shed now in games that are heavily inspired by games of that era, right? Uh, because I think that if you're if if the gameplay that you're experiencing in an area is fun enough, even if it's punishingly difficult, uh, that kind of stands on its own, I think. And I think that Adventure of Link could be the same way, you know, in an alternate world where like, you know, maybe there's like two blue iron knuckles in a room or whatever. <laughs> and yeah, that sounds hard. But like, you know, if they kill me 15 times, then it's much less of a hassle for me. Like I'm going to be using the rewind feature much less because I'm not having to warp all the way back to North castle or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's kind of a fun sounding game to me. So Celeste is a great example because Celeste does exactly what you're talking about to, to a much greater degree than almost any other game I can think of where they, they really, uh, Maddie Thorson, the, the head designer of that game. Yep. Um, she really did, uh, dial the difficulty up pretty high as a default for most of the rooms, most of the platforming. Um, and there just, there is not any other a- uh, avenue for difficulty to go up. You're not punished. Um, they're not, sh- uh, she didn't make it hard to read the situation. You can generally tell what's happening, what things are. It's not like Sonic where you're moving too fast and you kind of run into an obstacle before you see it. Sometimes like you can always see everything that's there. Um, so yeah, just, 
kudos, good example. Uh, and uh, it had it had elements of like opting in to higher difficulty stuff. Like you could collect all the stars or whatever they were, um, which was just this purely optional thing you could opt into trying to do. And it was much harder than getting through the level. Um, and I don't even think it gave you anything. Um, it was just a thing you might want to do. And that's a type of way to layer in higher difficulty without making it punishing. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I So I guess to tie up this section of the conversation, because we're going to get into into more later when we talk about the dungeons and general thoughts and feelings about this specific section of the game. But generally speaking, do you feel like you're getting any of the big Zelda feels from this game that you look for? Um, or that you associate with this series, like any of those things that really made you fall in love with Zelda in the first place? Um, no, <laughs> I, I am not. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, like I, I, the things I love about Zelda games are, well, okay. I, I should, I should add a little more nuance there a little bit. Uh, um, but yeah, like, oh, Matt's saying he has a little something to add on. The thing yeah, no, we, I want you to finish your that. thought. I want you to finish your thought. And we can go back to yeah. it. But. Okay. Um, but yeah, like I, the things I love about the Zelda game are Zelda series are a sense of exploration, a sense of plumbing mysteries, um, a sense of place. Uh, I like feeling in kind of a, a like through my senses that the game is presenting, which is usually just, you know, eyes and ears, Um, (laughs) you know, like I am in the place that the game is portraying uh, immersion basically. Um, So like, that's the kind of stuff I like about Zelda games. And I don't care about the combat typically very much. Uh, I, I like combat in Zelda games as a, as a way to texture the rest of that experience and to provide a little bit of like resistance uh, and a sense of earning these other things that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, But Venture Link doesn't really emphasize those things very much. It does in a few ways. Um, Like it's, it's actually pretty exciting and satisfying when you're like, huh, there's a weird little copse of trees over there standing by itself. Um, I'm going to go see what's there. And then you arrive and it takes you to a a hidden area and you're like, Oh yeah, I knew it. Like that sense of discovery is very Zelda. Yeah. Um, And honestly, that has more uh, um, telegraphing to it, more of a visual hook to attract your attention than the secrets in Zelda one often did. Sure. Yeah. Like that's, I was going to say the same thing, Max, like it has the secrets it does have are telegraphed in such a way that they're almost not even secrets. It's like a cave with a rock in front of it. I know I need to go smash this rock and go into this cave and there'll be something in it. A copse of trees that's by itself, a clearing in the middle of a swamp or like the king's tomb that we find this week that doesn't really serve any purpose except for being there. And the only reason I went there was because it's this lone cross standing in a clearing. And I was like, huh, maybe something's over there. Like it's all telegraphed. Yeah. And, and it's telegraphed, but it's not explicit. So you still get that, that feeling of discovery that, yeah, that I look for from a Zelda game. Yeah. And that's pretty classic. Um, I mean, all of those examples that you mentioned though, Matt, like, yes, they are obvious, 
to us now, especially. But I think that uh, Zelda games, even up through Breath of the Wild, you know, have relied on similar techniques. You know, um, I think like you know the 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 grove of trees that's standing by itself in the overworld. To me, that that's actually that's a very like Koroxy puzzle sort of thing right where it's like we kind of we like the visual language of that by itself uh we now associate with being able to find something there in the same way that a circle of stones with one missing you know always says seed, right yeah. Um, yeah i'm not saying like telegraphing is bad in and of itself i'm saying i think that it is primitively iterated on here oh, like sure, obviously it's the sure. first right like it's the first time that they're really telegraphing because the thing you we always said about zelda one was there is zero telegraphing of any kind in any way shape or form so like yeah. the, i feel like they went from that to let's just telegraph the crap out of it in the overworld and then in the yeah. dungeon there's still not much so like it's definitely interesting I, it's definitely interesting i, I, I want to sorry just to pick up on one thing that you said about the combat because i know we've talked about this in past games um that to to you the exploration is the main thing and and i think i typically mostly agree with you max i think the combat to me is one of those things where when it when it's just fine uh you know i i enjoy it well enough and it's just texture like you're saying uh for the games that the combat system manages manages to like transcend a little bit and to actually be a little bit more involved and fun than other Zelda games. I, I do find that that is like, you know, just some extra juice that typically endears me to that game just a little bit more. Um, Matt, you'll find out about that a little bit with uh, wind waker when we get to it next season. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but what I will say is that I, I think it's so interesting because Zelda two is so unique we've said this before but obviously combat is is such a huge part of this game and i was just trying to put like a number to it just now thinking in my head like how much of your time do you typically spend in combat in other zelda games and i would say it's probably something like 25 percent of your time in the 3ds and about 40 to 50 percent in the top downs uh with the other you know the other chunk being exploration right and I would say that this game is pretty much the inverse of that. It's uh, it's 25% exploration and the entire rest is combat. And so for that reason, I definitely understand why it's not really doing too much for you. By the way, the high difficulty was intentional. Um, I, I know we're talking about combat right now, but kind of one and the same, right? Um, I have a quote that I found from He's got Tadashi a quote. Sugiyama. <laughs> uh, who was the director of Adventure of Link? Nice. He's got a um, quote. He's got a quote. He's got a quote. It's a, he's got a dream so, yeah. from a uh, Monty Python. Yeah, uh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> he said, "In uh, this was in 2016." He said, "The foundation of action games at the time of Zelda 2 was to feel difficult for everyone. Games didn't have a ton of content, so in order to have them played for as long as possible, we felt like we couldn't make them easily clearable." Uh, we also did debugging, so we would play the game too much, and the game would have a high difficulty that was interesting to us, a.k.a. the dev team. <laughs> so I think there's a couple interesting things there, right? One of them was they, they literally intentionally made it harder in order to draw out the playtime, um, which is a very arcadey design uh, aesthetic, right? Like, that's that's what the business of arcades 
demanded. I think somebody mentioned that in one of the previous episodes. I, I, I think we talked about that with Josh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Josh, Josh said, you know, had, had some insight to this, which was that because arcades was where a lot of this design foundation was coming from, people were bringing what they learned about how to make arcades, arcade games to console games. Um, so that's why we have like life systems and like artificially drawn out playtime and high difficulty because that's how arcades worked. Um, that's how they made money. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I definitely, I definitely see that. And I think once you kind of, you know, that quote is definitely very telling. And once you start thinking about how much, like, if you were to cut your combat time in half in this game, it all of a sudden becomes a much briefer game, right? right. Uh, <laughs> like these dungeons do not, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're short, uh. But there's definitely not like there. There's not enough exploration to be had here to pad out a game for hours more, you know. Um, so that that definitely kind of makes sense. Uh, it doesn't mean that I like it anymore, <laughs> but uh, but I, I definitely understand kind of where they were coming from and, and what their what their aim was. Okay, well, let's get into some housekeeping, and then let's talk about this chunk of game that we played. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we take a new section of a Zelda game, uh, we play it, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes about it. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod. There you can get access to our Discord channel, which is hopping. Lots of great people in there talking about Zelda on a day-to-day basis. You can get access to listener mail. You can vote on what game we play next, which all of our patrons just got finished doing. And we haven't announced it on the podcast uh, as of yet, but here it is. Season 7 of Sacred Realms will be covering The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. So that's going to be a very excited for that one. That's going to be such a fun time. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to play that game. It's been four years since I played that game and I've been jonesing for it. So going to be a great time. Of course, uh, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above receive is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are loading. <laughs> Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Ali, Lennon, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, keep it going, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Maximum Nichols, your guest of the evening, Garrett, Andrew. These are all legendary individuals. We could not make the podcast without their generous support. We have gotten to know many of these people through our interactions in the Discord channel and have found them all to be capital folks. So, yeah, definitely appreciate uh, appreciate all of your support. You are the best of the best. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering The Adventure of Link, Chapter 3, which takes us to Island Palace and Maze Island Palace. We're uh, we're island hopping this week. It's going to be a good time. Part 1 
of the Sacred Realms Rundown is the plot recap, usually read by Matt. This week, also read by Matt. Matt, take it away. As we continue our journey through Hyrule, we have more palaces to find and crystals to place. But we know that some of the palaces lie beyond the Eastern Sea, so we must find a way to traverse the vast body of water. To start our search, we head to the easternmost town of mainland Hyrule, the town of Mido. Here we learn the downward thrust from a Hylian knight, which increases sword damage when attacking enemies from above. We also take the water of life that we found in a random cave during our wanderings to the village wise man, and he teaches us a spell to transform ourselves into a flying fairy to reach locations that even our increased jump height cannot reach. We do not, however, find a means of transportation across the ocean, so we head south to find inspiration at the tomb of the late king. After crossing the graveyard and avoiding some nasty ghosts, we find the tomb of the king and pay our respects. Nothing really comes to mind as we observe a respectful silence, so we head off southward again. Unexpectedly, we fall into a massive hole in the ground and find ourselves in an underground passage full of enemies. We head off to the right and come to an impassably high jump and decide to try out our new magic spell. And as a fairy, we fly up to the ledge and into the passage beyond, which apparently takes us underneath a small part of the lake to a lonely island where sits the fourth palace. We enter in to see what treasures we can find and to place the crystal within the totem. As with the dungeons before us, this one swarms with enemies and is much larger than either of the palaces before, or I should say any of the palaces before. Additionally, there are even more enemies and fearsome pain-in-the-ass upgrades to existing ones. Blue Stolfos use downward thrusts to deal increased damage and move more erratically. Some Doom Knockers throw maces at us that blow right past our defenses, and worst of all, the blue iron knuckles lurk deep within the dungeon. They throw damaging blades at blinding speeds and keep a safe distance from our sword, while still annoyingly blocking basically every attack in our arsenal. These things are a pure menace, and we rage as we beat our heads against these armored foes over and over again. But one good thing, we find a raft in this palace, which can safely see us across the body of water to Eastern Hyrule. Taking the raft, we head to finish this painful palace and place the crystal in the totem. In the bottom reaches of the palace, it's as if all of our worst fears become manifest as a blue-armored iron knuckle comes charging at us on an armored steed. Using our downward thrust a few times, we dehorse the menace, who then proceeds to toss swords at us as if he were getting paid by the blade. After a grueling battle, this foe falls like all those before it and explodes in a glorious fashion. Rejoicing on its corpse, we go place the crystal in the totem and head back to Mido to heal up and continue on our quest. From Mido, we launch the raft and enter the eastern part of Hyrule. We are immediately confronted by some blue tech types, which are completely immune to everything in our arsenal, so we hightail it to the nearest town. In Naburu, we learn the fire spell from a very thirsty woman's uncle, which allows our sword to shoot fire beams and damage those tektites and some other enemies at longer ranges. We head north to the caves and pass through them to the northern part of this area and head east to find the fabled maze, which is said to contain the fifth palace. 
While wandering this maze, we find another container that increases our total magic, and we also find a small child who is lost and says that he is from Darunia Town in the mountains. Taking this small child, we immediately leave the maze and take the boy home, fighting off plenty of nasty monsters along the way. And Banks, the boy's father, teaches us a new magic spell that increases the potency of our shield to reflect strong attacks and even reflect magic back on the caster. Also in Darunia Town, we find another Hylian knight who teaches us the upward thrust, which allows us to hit enemies from below with our blade. <clears throat> we take these new spells and abilities and head back to the maze to find the dungeon. After a long search and many battles, we enter the fifth palace at the end of the maze. And as before, we find it full of challenging foes, including the magic-wielding wizrobes from our previous journey. With our own magic spells, we fortify our shield and reflect this hostile magic back at our attackers to vanquish them. This palace also has vast chasms that we must traverse, and even voluntarily fall down, in order to find all the keys and the treasure items within. In the depths of the palace, we find some magical boots which allow us to walk on water and lava. After finding the boots, we head on back to continue the exploration of the palace to find the boss and place the crystal within the totem. Eventually, after much trial and error and dozens and dozens of enemies, we come to the boss room, where we are confronted by a massive red-robed wizrobe. This boss quickly teleports all around the arena, tossing spells along the ground quicker than we can react at many times. This boss, like the minor wizrobes before it, can only be damaged by reflecting its own magic back at it. By sitting in a corner of the arena, we just sit back, relax, and let the boss kill itself. And just like all the others, it explodes in a blaze of glory. We head on to place the crystal in the totem and exit the dungeon. And as the dungeon turns to stone behind us, we set our sights towards the largely unexplored eastern segment of Hyrule to find the last of the palaces and head towards the Valley of Death to claim the Triforce. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Let's go ahead and get into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Later, we'll get into Z-targeting, which I'm sure will feature uh, Matt kind of going on about what is clearly his favorite character in this entire game, which is the blue iron knuckle. Um, (laughs) you, You brought a very specific energy to this plot recap, Matt, and I appreciated that about it. Well, I try to bring specific energy to all of them to just let you know how I feel about it. But this so more than any other. Uh-huh. And like I said, uh, my feelings have not mellowed. Yeah. As, uh, as you were in Max's feelings have, as you said at the beginning, you've kind of tempered it out, mellowed it out. Nope. Not for me. Cool. Well. I mean, to be fair to you, the only reason mine have mellowed out is because I'm playing a hacked version of the game that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) See, I kind of wish I had that option, but also for the integrity of the pod, I don't feel like I could do that. So, yeah, is what it is. I I, I appreciate that you hold uh, your integrity in such high importance, Matt. That's, uh, you know. We we appreciate we appreciate your sacrifice is is what I'm trying to say here. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, I feel like it would be wrong to start with anybody else in part two other than Matt, who clearly has got opinions and feelings. So, Matt, why don't you kick us off? How did you feel about this section of the game? Well, in a in a surprise twist, I actually liked most of this section, like. The exploration of Mido Town, getting the downward thrust, getting the fairy spell, which is very weird. I, that's just an odd 
it's a weird one, but whatever. Um, the graveyard section was kind of annoying just because there were so many random encounters that like felt like they spawned right on top of you and you didn't really have an opportunity to avoid. Um, the tomb of the king was kind of neat. I wish it actually like did something and gave you something that would have been kind of cool. Like even just a red magic potion or something. Um, falling down that surprise hole was was neat and ha- having that be the way to get to the island palace. Um, I'm not going to talk about the island palace here. Um, obviously, my my plot recap speaks for itself. But um, yeah, island palace was a thing. Um, then I think like going to Eastern Hyrule was really cool. I really liked that. It felt like an expansion on the segment in uh, Legend of Zelda where you went to the the island. I, I really either one of the islands, either the island in the middle of the lake or the island where the old man gave you another piece of heart. Um, both of those were like pretty cool exploration pieces. This is just taking that to a whole new level of opening up like a whole other continent, more or less. I don't know if it's a continent, a peninsula. Like I don't really know the geography super well, but I really liked that. Like taking, taking the set piece and moving it completely. I thought that was a really cool um, additional uh, amount of exploration that could be done. Like, I feel like I have a whole another segment of map to explore because I do. And I just want to really I, like that. Yeah. I just want to say something about the geography of this real quick, because one thing that I've actually kind of appreciated about most of the Zelda games that we played so far, where you're actually playing in Hyrule is that even though there's some wild inconsistencies in terms of like the locations of recurring places for instance the temple of time which apparently just kind of like moseys wherever it wants to be from game to game um but a lot of the games do have some interesting uh consist consistency in terms of like the layout of the map right um to a greater or lesser extent mountain is normally like the northeastern section Zora's domain is kind of around there. Sure. The desert's on the southwest. Like, yeah, the, the, it kind of yeah, flows. Yeah, Lake Hylia right? typically is in the is in the southeast. And even as far as, like, the crazy thing where if you, like, like if you overlay a map of uh, A Link to the Past's Hyrule over Breath of the Wild's Hyrule, they're actually, like, weirdly consistent with each other, you know? Um, that That is something that is, it's a fun little Easter egg that is, uh, you know, it's it's fun to pick apart as you as you go into a new Zelda game from a previous one. But I think that the geography of Hyrule in Zelda two is definitely, um, it's odd, you know, it's definitely weird. I, I think this is for, for the heavy lore nerds who really try to find the consistencies and the through lines between all of these things. I, I'm willing to bet that this game probably gives them more of a headache than any of the others, just because aside, <laughs> aside from the cool bit, where the Zelda one overworld map is able to be found in this game. Uh, yeah, there's just nothing else here. That's like, Oh yeah, it's kind of here in this other game and all that sort of thing. It's just, Nope, this is a, it's a weird map. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I, but in, in, in the way that it is weird and unique, I think that's what makes me like it a little bit more and, and kind of, a point of enjoyment in this game that I have kind of been missing, which is some newness and some 
yeah, just s- s- some more exploration added into it. Like it was, it was kind, of, it was needed in my opinion, like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that, um, and I enjoyed the maze a lot. I liked the addition of a um, surprise encounter maze, and um, I actually like completed the maze on the first try without even really looking at the whole map. Like I wasn't looking at a map of the maze on a line or anything. I was just kind of trying to follow with my eyes where to go and um, was able to, to complete that. And that was kind of a fun challenge. Um, well, and, and that's actually one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that especially right after having played Breath of the Wild, where we've got the labyrinths and we thought they, that those were so fun to explore. And then we we have a labyrinth island in Adventure of Link. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that, that's I like neat. that. Yeah. And and visiting two new towns was fun. And I, as I explore each of the towns, I enjoy that they have kind of they have different styles, right? Like the architecture in each one is a little bit different. And the number of people and the number of like town segments. Like I think there's one town that has three segments or uh, some of them have two and um, the buildings look different. So I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot to see just the minor differences that they're able to make um, within the towns to make them feel distinct. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot. It gives it a sense of place that I think this game lacks in a lot of other ways is, um, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, I get you. So uh, I, I have a few points I want to bring up. Number one, just talking about the aesthetic that you were mentioning, Matt, of like finding new towns and NPCs and, you know, meeting new people and all that. Yes, I, I do appreciate that, especially in contrast to Zelda 1, which had none of that. I, I'm continuing to enjoy the the character of these spaces, right? Like the the little personalities that the that they tried to give to them you know it's still pretty rudimentary but um you know an effort was made and i do appreciate that i think the thing that i'm sort of finding aesthetically about this game the further that we get into it is that the art style is really just not working for me um (laughs) it's not and, and there's a lot of things that 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 fall under that umbrella. I mean, the the weird perspectives of like doors and gates and things in towns is definitely annoying. But even more than that, I think obviously on the NES, there's a very limited palette of colors with which to draw from whenever you're creating environments and whatnot. And that was something that uh, Zelda one had to deal with as well. But I think that with the limited tools available, Zelda one managed to, capitalize on them a little bit better and to create a world that felt um more artistically interesting to me i I don't know what it is exactly but like the the textures and like swatches and um the world that was kind of built here is visually bland to me um yeah even the sprites are not great like honestly like they're more detailed than they were in legend of zelda but yeah, I don't know. I, I agree that the art style isn't really doing it for me. Um, I I just appreciate that they try to differentiate towns, right? Like that's kind of all I was trying to say there. But I yeah. totally agree that I'm not loving the artistic direction. Some of the um, enemy sprites, I will say, are actually quite cool, and and I really enjoy like the Octoroks. Yeah, I actually the, think look look pretty cool. The Iron Knuckles I look like the pretty Goyres cool. A lot. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Like the, yeah, I like the Gor- Gorias. 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 Yeah. Um, the boss designs There's, tend to be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm actually on the same page. The enemy designs are what sent out to me in this game. Uh, and to a lesser extent, some of the townsfolk. Um, but like the, uh, when you're going between the cave, between 
on in the new land and you're going north through that cave to get to the maze island area there's this weird like four-legged creature that shoots fireballs at you i think it's like a zora or something it looks like a zora to me um but it switches between standing on its hind legs and standing on all fours uh and that thing is super cool looking yeah it looked like a totodile <laughs> I was thinking if we're if we're all talking about the same thing, I thought that that was a Dodongo, but I don't know. There's no tell- there's no telling. <laughs> but regardless, the animation of it is pretty cool. But I mean, aside from that, I mean, you know, Super Mario Brothers predates this game, and it's a side-scrolling world entirely, and um, and and it did more interesting things with its with its environments and textures and whatnot than than this really did, and and so I found that to be a source of disappointment as we kind of continue into the game. It's just artistically, I don't think a very strong effort in the in the canon of Zelda games, which I would be perfectly willing to excuse because of its age if the Legend of Zelda had not done it better one game previous to this but uh, yeah, yeah i i also can see like knowing you and your preference for that specific era and style of art like those are also the indie games that you generally enjoy more artistically as well so like it, it could totally be a personal preference thing and like while i tend to agree with you i also didn't like love the legend of zelda like 8-bit games and sprites and stuff like that don't really do it for me um so you know, I, I don't want to like say that it is objectively bad. I think we're saying it's subjectively. It just doesn't quite do it for us, right? Yeah. For for me, I for Legend of Zelda one, um, I have I think they did a good job for the color palette and resolution they're working with for like Link sprite and to a lesser extent some of the enemy sprites. The bosses were often bad. Um, Zelda two, it's like compared to even its contemporaries working with similar tech and palette uh, or resolution. I think it is pretty bad looking. I don't like Link's sprite. I think, I think Link's sprite looks kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm not a wild fan of it. I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Max. <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to like throw that in there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, one thing that I thought was kind of nice about this section of the game is that, you know, last week, Matt, we were talking a lot about and then the week before that as well, we were talking a lot about how I was really feeling the lack of inventory. Right. Uh, I was missing Link's arsenal. Uh, You know, we don't we don't have a boomerang. We don't have a bow. We don't have any of the like, you know, obviously there was no hookshot in The Legend of Zelda, but it's like we don't have any of these things that we that we're kind of used to having and that are fun to play around with. All we really had was our sword and our shield. And then we had a magical means by which to heal ourselves and to uh, add damage resistance to ourselves. But those are still both passive things for the most part, right? Um, This week, we actually filled out our repertoire of magic spells a little bit more. Uh, We still have, I think, one or two more to go after this. But we did get the fireballs this week, which were a clear standout. Um, They are a low-cost magical ability that are actually decently useful, at least against enemies that we find in this section of the game. I know that the fairy thing is weird. Like, thematically, it's kind of interesting. I I don't really get it. But, like, you know, it is fun as far as traversal goes and it does give us some more options there and then the reflect spell basically gives us a mirror shield right um 
And so one thing that I did think was fun in this section of the game was the filling out of Link's abilities and kind of giving us more tools to play with on a minute-to-minute basis. And um, what I've kind of found now is that, especially as we get into more challenging combat sections of the game, I am getting into a flow where in each combat encounter, I'm kind of trying to figure out like, okay, maybe I don't need to save all of my magic for life replenishment you know maybe it does make sense to use my high jump here or my damage resist or my shield reflect or my fireballs or whatever and 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 i'm definitely kind of like appreciating um all of those different options and feeling like i found use cases for all of them several times this week which is which is really nice actually um i still think it's unfortunate that it's all tied to this magic meter situation right um that's the big limiting factor and that sort of makes it a little bit in like a little inherently less fun to possess some of these things because in other zelda games right they're they're pretty much infinite use um but still credit where credit is due those abilities are useful and i did lean on them a lot this week uh as i've played more so for a while i thought a lot of spells were i couldn't really imagine how i was going to get a lot of use out of them um, or how I could ever afford to waste magic on them, <laughs> right? Uh, but I've I've been finding myself more and more often seeing a situation and realizing, like, oh, if I use this smell, the spell, like jump, for instance, um, to approach this combat differently, I can actually avoid taking damage, avoid taking more damage than it would be uh, than I could heal with the same amount of magic. Uh, yeah like that kind of calculus is going through my head a lot yeah yeah i found myself doing the same thing i think that while i really like the addition of the fire spell um there are so many enemies that are immune to range attacks specifically iron knuckles and um even like stalfos i think um you can't damage them with the sword beam or the fireball and like trying to approach that combat like Going back to what we've been talking about, which is the famine economy of like, I have to constantly think about, you know, how do I make sure that I have enough magic to go into an area so that I can do what is required? Like there was multiple times in the the second dungeon that we played this week where I didn't have enough magic to activate my jump spell to go get one of the keys or to activate reflect spell uh the first time i fought the boss because i just didn't have enough magic going into the fight and so like i had to die so that i could refill my health and magic and luckily i had an extra life and didn't get a game over and there was just no way around that like i couldn't leave the dungeon go farm some magic and come back i'd have to fight everything all over again like i wouldn't have to get the keys but i have to fight everything and utilize much of the same amount of magic to get back to it so um stuff like that really is becoming more and more of a frustration even as i continue leveling up and like it's supposed to reduce your the the amount of magic it takes to to do spells but healing still costs 50 and shield reflect spell costs 36 and or 32 or whatever and um you know the the famine economy is really pushing this into a place that is very hard to be strategic about approaching combat in a different way outside of like i just can't use magic and i have to try to beat this boss without losing any health and also not using magic 
yeah. or this enemy. And like that's becoming very frustrating. Well, and that's one of the cardinal sins of this whole system. We'll get to it when we talk about the bosses and the dungeons. But there are definitely areas in this section of the game where if you don't have enough magic to cast a particular spell, then you're you're SOL like you, you just can't do it. And um I, I think that that is that is a failing of the system on a on a design level. But we'll get into that more a little bit later. Max, did you I mean, do you have any general thoughts about this section of the game before we talk more specifically about dungeons and, and things like that? I I do. Um, so there's two there's there's two or three kind of standout moments in this section of the game for me. Uh, and one of them I've already talked about, which was when I ran into the blue iron knuckle and uh entirely quit my game and started a whole new save file on a different system. Um, <laughs> and that was the, that was the first blue easy. iron knuckle just to clarify. <laughs> yep. No, I just, I got, I actually got to it. I died to it once and I was already like really up, kind of frustrated. So I was just like, you know, forget this and threw down the game. and didn't play for 24 hours. Um, <laughs> So that that was a memorable moment in in a very bad way. Uh, in the past, I have also never gotten past the third dungeon, um, the island palace. Uh, that's where I've I've fallen off this game in my past attempts to play it. Um, the second one for me was getting the downward swing, uh, which is a total game changer to the combat in this game. Um. Prior to getting that ability, you generally need to approach sword combat in either a very risky fashion or a very passive fashion. You either need to kind of like wait for the enemy to get to you and time your sword swing so that it hits them and knocks them back before they hit you. Um, Or uh, you need to do a leaping attack. And that's generally pretty risky. Uh, Or a run and stop. Um, and the second, as soon as you get the downward swing, suddenly you have a way to attack on approach to enemies, uh, that is more versatile and is, you can approach a bunch of enemies don't attack upwards. So you can approach from an area that they're not attacking from. And it just really opens up your options and changes how you look at most combat situations. Assuming it's an enemy that can be damaged with the downward swing. Which Iron <laughs> Knuckles cannot be, because of course they yes. can. How, however, most can, and th- that is important to mention. So, yeah, basically, <laughs> one thing that I, I definitely felt uh, when using the downward thrust for the first time was that Shovel Knight vibes are definitely intensifying. Um, this is, uh, this is a, a core piece of the Shovel Knight kit, and so... Yeah, the connection between that game and this game continued <laughs> to intensify for me. Um, but the other one was that Josh was totally right. Every single time I use the downward thrust, I feel like I'm just playing Link in Super Smash Brothers. Like, yeah, that is like totally Super Smash Brothers Link move number one. So, yeah, it felt familiar in that way. But it's a uh, it's it's Adventure of Link's most lasting impact on the series. <laughs> yeah, I mean the move set for Link in Smash Brothers is straight out of Adventure of Link in a lot of ways. The <laughs> upward thrust and the downward thrust, and uh, the reflect spell even in some ways because Smash Bros has the the deflect capability. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. It, it's interesting. I actually 
see a lot of ways that are kind of incidental that Adventure of Link influenced the series, but not it's all like little details that seem like they came back later, but whereas like the core of the game, how it all works, like was totally discarded. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of an interesting uh thing i'm noticing as i play through maybe i'll talk about more that more in the recap episode yeah uh so anyway sorry to derail you but yeah just wanted to talk yeah. about the downward thrust for a second <laughs> the upward thrust seems comparatively less useful um i haven't found a use for it yet actually um, other than breaking blocks yeah there there yeah. are some firefly uh, enemies dragonfly enemies that I found in this section of the game that I was able to use it uh, to defeat them and I don't know I like I'm, I'm I guess I'm glad that I have it uh, I would also say that I yeah, wasn't using it. it yeah I, I was not using it nearly yeah. as much as the uh, the downward um, the third the third kind of major moment for me was jumping on that raft going to Hyrule 2 um, or, you know, I don't actually know what they call this, this second major continent. Uh, but Adventure of Link does this very interesting thing to me where, um, where Zelda one was intimate, personal, small Zelda two is like, we're going to do the opposite of that. We're going to give you a world. Uh, we will show you the world. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I got, I got into Zelda fandom by like finding Zelda fan sites in like, I don't know, 1998 ish. Um, and I was pretty young, but so I was like reading all the fan fiction and I had, I had not played almost any Zelda games at that point, but knowing what I know now, looking back adventure of link, like really energized the Zelda fandom um, with just an incredible amount of like stuff to, for their imaginations to latch onto. Uh, all the fan fiction was about North Castle or or the Zelda cartoon, which referenced stuff from Adventure of Link a lot. Or, uh, you know, they it, it kind of portrayed Hyrule as this thriving place that had a functioning government and villages and people and uh, things going on in it that you just really didn't get from Zelda One. And this this moment where you go to the second continent um really just drives that home you're like oh i am exploring a large world um in a way that other zelda games even since then don't really do uh so i don't know that's that's interesting like i think a lot of things about this game weren't successful but a lot of things it did were like experimental and made a big impression on people especially at the time yeah well i i think you know matt and i even mentioned in our in our intro episode for this game that we felt like one of the biggest wins of the game, you know, overall was that the, the expansion of the lore and the fiction of this world is actually very interesting. Uh, and there are a lot of things that are kind of established in this game that become fictional mainstays of the Zelda universe for the remainder of its existence, you know? Um, and for that reason alone, it, it's interesting and I appreciate it um, because the Legend of Zelda, you know, I think we we had talked about while we were playing through that game that it just so many of the like, I guess so many of the things that we rely on in these games were present. You know, we had a Zelda, we had a Ganon, we had an Impa and we had a Hyrule, um, but they were all uh, they were all sketches of themselves, basically. 
Um, it was a snapshot of what it could be. And what this game is kind of doing is expanding that story. And I, I, I appreciate it very much for that, if for nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. I think that that probably is going to suffice for part two, because I, I know that at least I have got some some things to say about the dungeons specifically. So let's go ahead and get into yeah. part three, which is the dungeon map, where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. Of course, in season six of Sacred Realms Pod, we are, for the most part, getting two dungeons per episode. Uh, we're doing that again this week. So we're going to talk about dungeon three which is the island palace and then dungeon four which is the island or excuse me which is the maze island palace so let's go ahead and start with dungeon three uh this is the dungeon where we as has been previously noted uh we encounter our first blue iron knuckle um this dungeon is definitely not as large as Medoro Palace before it, and also not as large as Maze Island Palace after it. Um, but definitely definitely features a difficulty spike. I don't think there's any denying that. Max, how did you feel about this one? Uh, so you've, you've heard the most important bit of my, my uh, <laughs> feedback already, but other stuff. Um, <laughs> Rage quit. So one thing I've noticed about Adventure of Link is its dungeons do have much more personality um, than Zelda One's dungeons? Uh, like, like they just actually, in terms of like encounter design. It, yeah, in terms of like, are, are are they memorable as their own place? Do they blur together in my mind as much? And the answer is no. They don't blur together as much. And yes, they are more memorable individually. I actually have memories that I'm like, oh yeah, that was a memory from this dungeon or that dungeon instead of. I don't remember what dungeon that was, which is how I felt about Zelda one. Um, but so this what's with Island palace. Um, it's interesting because it's, it's the first dungeon that really makes use of these destructible tiles, right? Yes. Like that's a major theme in this dungeon. It's all over this dungeon. Um, and they play with it. They have some rooms where they're like, Oh, you need to, you need to break these things in order to give yourself footsteps in order to get places. And, oh, if you broke the wrong one, you let out a red iron knuckle that was hiding in a cage and now you need to kill it. <laughs> Whoops. Um, so they just they find these ways to play with it. And the most memorable one for me is that one room where you need to go in and get a key and it has those gargoyle heads. I don't know their name. Um, gargoyle but, uh, gargoyle heads, will, well, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. They're like the floating heads that shoot fireballs and they all, they have a very predictable pattern where they shoot, go up two spaces, shoot, go down two spaces. Uh, and I was trapped in the, <laughs> um, you know, buried in all these destructible cubes with the key unable to get out because I was out of mana and I just had to like really, really memorize the rhythm of this pattern in order to survive escaping this area. Um, when I restarted the game and played this again, I, I instead used the shield spell and the jump spell to get out of there. Uh, but that was a very memorable moment to me. So, so that's the sort of stuff that sticks out to me in this dungeon is this use of destructible stones. Yeah. So I, I, I want to touch on that for a minute because that was one of my favorite things about this, about this week. Um, and about both of these dungeons really 
the second dungeon we're going to talk about doesn't use it as much. It, it's it's mainly happening here, but it still has has a little bit. But um, the destructible blocks I found to be a very fun and interesting obstacle. Um, you really do have to have a an awareness of place, you know, especially in that room that you're talking about where you have those infinitely spawning gargoyle heads and uh, you basically have to, like you're given hundreds of these destructible blocks and they're stacked like four or five high and whatever stairs or escape route you can make out of that, it's totally up to you to figure out how to do it. And I thought that that was frantic in a fun way. I actually really did enjoy that. Um, it was still occasionally frustrating. Like I, I still took, <laughs> I, I still took quite a lot of hits, you know, while trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and some of that was because I hadn't quite gotten the rhythm of that of that enemy movement down yet that you were talking about. Uh, and then once you kind of learn how that works, it's a lot easier to figure out. Of course, you know, there's only there's only so far that that goes once you have like three of them coming at you from both sides right but like there there is a learning curve to figuring out how to deal with them but but i did think that in terms of like what i consider to be a dungeon puzzle you know i think that this qualifies really um i i think that uh later games certainly will do very different things in terms of trying to give you puzzles in a room or, or or whatever but i think that on the on the terms that this game has established of like this side scrolling um layout to dungeons uh i do think that this does qualify as a puzzle and it really causes you to think and i appreciated it for that reason yeah i would say i enjoyed this as well the first time that it happened the other like <laughs> three or four times that it happened i was like okay we get it. You figure out how to make this happen. Um, yeah, a, a little overkill on the reuse of that puzzle. I think the the first time it happened, it was it was brutal. The second time it happened, I felt smart when I thought of a way to avoid it. And the third time, it was like old hat. I kind of didn't really think about it. I was just in and out. So I ended up using one of these rooms actually as a farming spot because uh, again, I, I I think Josh mentioned this last week on the on that episode but uh the way that experience works in this game is that once you place a crystal at the end of a dungeon it auto completes whatever level you're currently working on so if like if you've got if you're working towards a 2000 xp level up and you have 1750 experience when you beat the boss when you go place the crystal it's going to auto complete you know whatever 250 that you have left to go which is neat But also, if you are on like 0001 experience and you beat the boss Hmm. and then you go place the crystal, then you just got, you know, 1,999 experience points for completely free. So the strategy is really to, if you're anywhere close to a level up, try to go grind that out and then go beat the boss. The nice thing about these floating gargoyle heads is that, like I said, they spawn infinite. They spawn infinitely, they're one-hit kills, and they get you five experience per kill. And they have a very predictable movement pattern once you kind of, like, learn what it is. So, uh, yeah, I was definitely able to use one or two of these rooms as farming spots to kind of, like, it's like, ah, I I could really use 200 XP real quick. Just 
Just make sure you're reliably dodging everything or blocking everything because they drain your XP when they hit yes, you. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Do uh, they do they take damage from fireball spell? Because I, I didn't test that. I didn't out. try. I didn't try. Okay. Yeah. I would assume not. That seems like it would be too easy, but I don't know. Especially because the real question is, does reflect work on their projectiles? I also didn't try that. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. But it would be OP. Yeah, I, I, I should Google that and see how either of those things work because, of course, the way that magic works in this game is that once you cast a spell in a room, it, it it's like infinite for the entire time that you're in that room. Like once you pass into another room, the spell is broken and you have to cast it again. But if you were to cast fireballs in one of these rooms and just farm these dudes forever, you could do that. You would never run out of fireballs. So, yeah, that that would be something to look into for sure, but... Yeah, so that's definitely a fun strategy that I found in, in this dungeon. Um, I want to talk about the blue iron knuckles real quick because seriously, like we've – if we had a jar for that this episode, then we would already be rich. We've talked about those guys a ton. Obviously, they're <laughs> they're very difficult. They're a huge ramp up in difficulty over the regular iron knuckles that we've already fought. What I want to say about these guys is that I don't think that – as an enemy type, they're actually as hard as we're saying that they are. Here's the problem. Basically, every time you fight one of these guys, you're doing it in like a tunnel or in some little cranny. And you just have got like no space to move. Um, for that reason, I actually enjoyed the boss a little bit more. Like I thought I was I was like when I got to the to the boss room for island palace and i saw that it was a blue iron knuckle i just about tore my hair out and i was like i'm this seriously why why are you doing this to me um but then like you know once i actually started that fight and once i realized that when you have some room to maneuver and to create space between yourself and the blue iron knuckle um it's actually it's more interesting of an experience but every single other place that it happens in this dungeon it's just like you're fighting this thing in a dark alley somewhere, basically, and it's just the worst. <laughs> you stumble out of the bar, walking towards your car. <laughs> what do you see? <laughs> Blue iron knuckles Blue are going to take knuckles. all your money. <laughs> oh, man. I, oh, boy. But, I mean, am I am I wrong, though? I would. I think you're wrong, yes. Cool. Wait. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. You do usually fight them in alleys. Uh, oh, no, you, you do usually fight them in alleys. But I, I think even outside of that, they're incredibly frustrating because they have the, an infinite ranged attack and they constantly back up from you. And unless you can get them to a point where they can't back up anymore, you can't even get within range to hit them. So like that's why the boss was a little bit easier because he didn't have anywhere to go. So you, you could kind of maneuver him into a position where you could actually do damage where you don't have that option most of the other time, whether you're in a big room or not. Yeah. Uh, so one of the one of the downsides potentially of the way I was playing up until this point, which was that I was kind of using save states and rewinding a lot because I didn't want to have to lose all my lives and get back to where I was. Um was that I was not mastering uh, the combat with easier iron knuckles, right? Like oftentimes when a game presented presents you with this hard wall, it's a hard enemy. You have to beat it to proceed. 
you kind of have no choice but to to get skilled enough to beat it. Got to get good. I was bypassing. Yeah, I, I, you you have to get good, and I wasn't getting good because I was instead safe stating my way through. I was only halfway getting good. Um, so I think by the time I got to this blue iron knuckle, I didn't have my skills built up to the point that I would have had if I had been playing totally legit. Um, other than the fact that if I'd been playing totally legit, I would have rage quit before I got here. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's that part. Um, <laughs> but so I think, uh, maybe all of us, but definitely me, I was getting to this enemy just totally unequipped with the skills to beat it so i kind of i tried it a few times it's it's attacking faster with slower or less time to see its tells it's backing up from my attacks instead of walking into them um and it it just felt like this impossible thing like i was like oh there's no way i'm gonna beat this unless i rewind after every hit i take uh so I don't, I don't. So I didn't even. I didn't even get to the point really where I was noticing that I that it was uh, backing up more than other iron knuckles. Although now that you pointed out, you're right. It totally, it totally was. I think that it, it's interesting when we talk about the combat learning curve of how to fight some of these enemies because obviously I you know had a hell of a time with regular iron knuckles in the last few episodes, and I got to the point where this week a red iron knuckle wasn't something that really bothered me too much. Like I've gotten to the point where I'm good enough at the jump stab thing to where 75% of the time I can take these dudes out before they hit me even once. And I'm never having to rewind against one unless I'm like in permadeath mode, right? Where one hit from anything will do me in. And that does happen sometimes. And, and you know, and they still manage to land a hit every now and again. But like for the most part, I, I am kind of like learning how to tackle these guys. The trouble is that, again, the blue iron knuckles, you really can't even rely on that for the most part. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to say that in every blue iron knuckle encounter that I came up against this week, which they're I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Matt? They're like four five, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, between both dungeons. Um, I probably rewound my game 50 to 75 times between all of those encounters, like just a ton. And I'm not ashamed to say that. Like, you know, I'm sure that there are people who can clear them flawlessly. Um, That's just not the way that I'm playing this game. Like, I am relying on the rewind function to a pretty incredible degree, honestly. Like, uh, and... And I, I I still don't feel bad about that. Like, I'm not going to feel guilty about that. I'm still experiencing the game. Um, I mean, is is it similar for you, Matt? Yeah, I, I really do think that that is true because, like, as much as I've been trying to master the jump and hit them in the head with red Dark Knights, blue Dark Knights are more, or sorry, Iron Knuckles. I keep wanting to call them Dark Knuckles. Nuts, too, yeah. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me. Thank you. Uh, blue iron knuckles are immune to that because if you jump to stab them in the head, they just throw a sword and hit you anyway. So that doesn't work for this enemy anymore. So like every all of the skill that you've been building up to fight iron knuckles is now totally useless. You have to actually per, you know push them forward and block their stuff by you know doing the up and then crouch, crouching up, crouching up, out, crouch, up, 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 crou
to to get close enough to them without taking too much damage. So they they basically to somewhat counter your your point there, Max, about not having the skill, which I do agree, I definitely don't have the skill that I would have if I were trying to play this the normal way. But they are a total uh, flip of the more established way to kill Iron Knuckles that we've had previously. They're they're just different. Mm. Yeah, and that's quite true. And in fairness, there there is a pattern here, right? Like it is definitely possible to block most of these knives or at least a good amount of them. Right. But you can only keep that up for so long, you know, um, and each one that hits you does such an incredible amount of damage. That's like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get how people beat this game <laughs> when, when rewinding and save states weren't a thing. You know, I just, that sounds, that sounds miserable to me. Um, and I'm very, very happy that I'm playing it in such a way that allows me to circumvent, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of the permanently, you know, like warp back to North Castle and lose your experience and all, all those things. Um, <laughs> Cause that sounds like a, a nightmare. You know what ability I hope I find a knight who can teach me in a town somewhere the ability for Link to duck his face behind his shield. God, right? He's crouching. <laughs> uh, I know that that's not a thing. Well, it's just so, it's just sh- so tough because I do take a lot of hits as well where I'm like, I see something coming at me and I duck and I'm like, oh, I'm good. But it's like, nope, there's like there's two planes of movement or of like projectile movement here. There's your head and then there's your knees and it's one of those and regardless of how many times you think you're safe by crouching you know it's sorry like it's not going to go over your head um (laughs) yeah uh we've already talked about the boss it's a blue iron knuckle on a steed um i mean yeah what else is there to say uh the uh the mounted part of this fight is super easy just use your downward thrust you kill the horse or was it a horse or it looked like he had like a a hover bike in the shape it's like of a, a horse. yeah it's like a hover motorcycle you know it's when you get your motorcycle in breath of the wild too these are the biker gangs you're gonna fight <laughs> it's like what it looked like a uh it looked like a zelda version of like a quarter operated like you know horsey out, out in front of a grocery <laughs> store right like he's just riding around on one of those <laughs> so yeah so we took care of that guy as uh, and after you kill the steed it's just a regular blue uh iron knuckle so not too much else to say there the item that we get in this dungeon is the raft of course the raft allows us to move on a predetermined path between two points uh after we acquire this item we are able to move to another continent and of course with another continent comes another dungeon so let's go ahead and start talking about that one that is maze island palace which is much different than island palace if uh if nothing else uh it's a larger dungeon there's a lot more of it to discover here um this dungeon i actually i enjoyed quite a bit more than the one before it i appreciate how it's kind of like bifurcated into two distinct areas um that are not connected to each other uh i i think that it's so it's so fun because we know that in order to 
count a dungeon as having been cleared, you have to get both the main item that's in it and also you have to place the crystal in the statue. What this dungeon has done is it put the crystal uh, – it put the statue in one half and it put the item in another half and you have to kind of conquer them separately. And I appreciate that because it really does allow for some more exploration than we've had from dungeons in this game so far. The other thing that this does for the first time is that it it allows you to fall into pits as a means from getting from one room to another, um, which I did not pick up on immediately because this game is really fond of its insta-death like lava or water (laughs) areas. It does love the insta-death. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you know, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and say like, "Ooh, I should have realized that you could jump into this pit and get to the room below." Yeah, there's like, there's no way you could have possibly known. No, that. absolutely <laughs> no way. However, that being said, uh, this is a very Link's Awakening thing that it does here. Like, I, I got some Eagles Tower vibes doing all this. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated the 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 pit of you know the bottomless pit as a means of transportation. It felt. Uh, to use another game, it felt kind of Shadow Temple-y, and uh, I enjoyed that. Um, I accidentally discovered it by not having my jump spell activated and missing the first jump and then falling all the way down to the bottom, and I was like, oh, cool. I guess uh, I should probably go from here and just kind of explore. So I I enjoyed Maze Palace a lot more for that reason alone, of just, like you said, Lyndon, having them separated drives you to an exploration that has kind of been missing and i really enjoyed it i liked um going all around and being my completionist self kind of sectioning off the the portions of the palace as much as i could and like exploring basically bottom up as much as possible i i had a good time with it um there were less blue iron knuckles which was great um, I don't have as much of a hard time with the uh, Doom Knockers, which is what those mace thrower guys are called. Um, so every time I would see one of those, especially now that I have the downward thrust, was like, ah, cool, get to a, a, yeah. an easy 150 experience or whatever it is off these guys. And, and sometimes they'll even drop some fun. magic. Yeah, I like those guys. So yeah, I, I liked this dungeon quite a bit more, or palace or whatever it's called, than um, Island Palace. Did you find that to be the case as well, Max? Yeah, this is my favorite dungeon so far in this game. Um, I should admit that that may be colored by the fact this is the first one that I experienced 100% in easy mode. Um, <laughs> but I find the the Doom Throwers are fun to fight. The Wiz Robes uh, are also fun to fight because it's really satisfying to reflect their attacks back at them. Um, as long as you have the magic for it, of course. Uh, <laughs> there aren't as many Iron Knuckles, which I hate to fight. Uh, and uh, then there's the boss, um, which I'll, I guess I can talk about later when we're at the boss. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I agree with you about the whiz robes, definitely. I love that uh, that feeling of when you, you manage to connect their shot back to them, and then you see that, like, 100 or... Is it 75 or 100 experience that you get from killing one of those? It's a big number regardless, and it's always very satisfying when you, whenever you make that happen. Um, Especially because it's not that hard. Like, no, yeah. Kill yourself. <laughs> it's like, why you stop hitting yourself? Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> no, it's it's not it's not difficult at all, and it, it's it's always it's always a lot of fun. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think going back to your your point about the magic economy again, Max, you said like this is something that's easy to do if you have the magic for it. Um, it it's got me thinking that so between jump and shield enhance and reflect and fireballs and all these other things these are all decently cheap things to do i think that the only reason that magic feels like it's at such a premium is because the restore health bit is so wildly expensive and and you feel like you have to save for it yeah 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 um but regardless of that i did not um and granted i allowed myself to take a game over between dungeons so that i was refilled on lives um so I never really felt necessarily like uh, I was as pressured to save all of my magic for for healing uh, as I probably could have been. Uh, the other thing that's a fun trick to use that I definitely did in this dungeon, especially uh, especially because after you kind of like come back from the uh, from the eastern half where you get the boots and then you go to the western half to do the boss and the crystal and all that, you pass right by the entrance to the dungeon. And all you have to do is leave the dungeon and come back in, and every single time you do that, you can hit the Iron Knuckle statue at the beginning to get a full magic top off. So, Oh, that responds. Yes, it does. It does? Every what? time? Yep. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Well, I wish I'd known that. It, it, so, and it, it was like that last week with one of the other dungeons as well. Uh, yeah, all you have to do is leave the dungeon, come back in, hit the statue again, you get a full magic top off. So, if you're if you're really, but all the enemies respawn too, don't they? Well, yeah, but you're not going back to that second to that first half of the dungeon. Like, there's no reason to go back there. Uh, yeah, that's because true. You already assuming you got the boots and all the keys then you shouldn't have to go clear any enemies that you've already beaten because you're just going to be going forward into the second half where you beat the boss. So, um, yeah, that's a good call. Although I do want to say in the dungeon last week, I saw a note on Zelda dungeon.net that that intro statue and it did it for me last week was it can spawn either a full magic potion or a red iron knuckle for you to fight. Like it's kind of a random chance one or the other. So you can beat yourself up on that. Just by the way, still something to keep in mind. Like if you, if you really need some health, then yeah, just exit the dungeon and reenter and you can try and farm that statue. But, um, Anyway, yeah, so the Wizrobes are, are a very fun enemy, I thought. Um, this dungeon, for me, what it kind of really did is it uh, it made me think about, do I like the way that dungeons are done in this game as a concept? Like, do I think that there is room for the side-scrolling Zelda dungeon to be a fun thing? And I think that the answer that I come away with is yes. Um, I think that there is a kernel of an idea here that expanded in a more modern way could actually be a very fun iteration on dungeons in a Zelda game. Um, and I, and I was surprised to find that. I, yeah, you first Max. Oh, uh, when I play this game, it reminds me of playing kid Icarus on my original game boy as a kid. Um, like it's this v- just something about the way it's uh it's side scrolling it's platform it's kind of this weird jumping physics where you jump really high but not very far uh you see these locked doors that are kind of these flimsy little weird doors thrown in place and they have a lot of stuff that's like kind of just totally unexplained and 
doesn't have any cause in the environment, like bubbles flying upwards and some over overland places and <laughs> monsters flying around with like cut off necks, like where it's like the pixel art just ends. Like it feels very, very much like other platforming kind of exploration games at the time. Um, but the thing is, one of the things that happened with that kind of game is they all went into Metroidvania as a genre, like Metroidvania genre is this with puzzles and uh, navigation, right? Um, so this could easily expand into kind of Metroidvania-esque space, which indies explore all the time, and Metroid does. Uh, and that's what a Zelda does. You could just have a Zelda dungeons that are straight-up Metroid environments. Um, bam. That's a Zelda dungeon. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Matt? I, I, I totally agree, Max. And I was going to say kind of the same thing with the comparison to Metroid is like, I think a game that does side scrolling dungeon diving well is uh, Metroid Dread. And I, I think that if there was a way, and I'm not, you know, <laughs> intelligent or creative enough to, to do it, but if there was a way to take a Metroid esque side scrolly game and consolidate that to like a Zelda, but only within the dungeons. I would be really fun. Like I would really enjoy that. I don't know what technical aspect you would have to have to have a different overworld with the side scroll dungeon um, outside of what adventure of link is currently doing, um, which I don't necessarily love, but like if you could keep it in the third person view of like Ocarina of time, when you're out in Hyrule field, and then as soon as you enter the dungeon, it kind of turns into that side scrolly uh, Metroid esque. I think there is, there's something there. I don't know how execution wise that would work or how that would be, you know, sustainable from a technology standpoint or even how it would feel in practice. But like just as a concept, it's interesting because I don't I don't hate the way that specifically Dungeon 5 I really enjoyed like Dungeon 4. I did not like because of the combat of the blue iron knuckles and like that's its own thing. But as far as you know, going through each of these palaces has genuinely been a pretty enjoyable experience. And so I will say that the the palaces are kind of a high point for me in the grand scheme of Adventure of Link right now. Uh, story time, by Ooh. the way, if you don't mind me taking a three minute aside. Go here. for it. I love Max story uh, time. I love Max story. So time. Um, there are some interviews where <laughs> Uh, you've heard me talk about Yoshiaki Koizumi before. He was the co-director of Majora's Mask, um, you know, co-inventor of Z-targeting, uh, the writer for Link's Awakening and Link's Past Manual. Uh, and he and Miyamoto, with as far as I know, just the two of them, at one point on the SNES were prototyping a Zelda 2 esque Zelda game that had side scrolling combat um, that didn't see the light of day, obviously. And, uh, and I mean, they were like experimenting it with 3d. It was like polygons because the SNES briefly had the FX chip and the ability to do 3d. Um, so they were experimenting with adventure of link two for the SNES. Uh, and later when they were making Ocarina of time, um, which was also heavily featured Koizumi and Miyamoto. Uh, Koizumi, the, there was a plan briefly for Ocarina of Time to be first person, um, and combat would go to a different screen and do side-scrolling combat. 
uh, like Adventure Link. So that was almost the thing, Matt. What you just described also how Miyamoto approached this problem at one point. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. I first person in melee combat games is always a little interesting. In it would it would have been first person until you got to combat oh, okay, in that plan. And then it would have been side scrolling like this game is. I definitely think that there's a there's a very interesting route that the Zelda series could have taken, um, especially given that, from my understanding, this game was not critically panned in any major way. That that's not the impression that I get, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll talk about it more in, in the other episode, but it was it was a critical success and a sales success. Yeah. People like loved it. And so in some ways, it's astounding to me that we actually kind of bounced back into a link to the past um, from from this game. But and anyway, we'll have that conversation more a little bit later. Um, I, real quick, I do want to talk about the boss of this dungeon because I think that uh, Master Wizrobe is a total pushover. I think we've had we've had hard bosses, actually very hard bosses in this game up until this point. And uh, this guy, as long as you know where in the arena to stand, you're golden. You're just good. You're good to go. Um, and I don't want to say that that like makes it a good boss encounter, but I did appreciate that moment of, of respite <laughs> in, in like comparison to everything else that happened to us this week. In, in comparison to Dungeon Four, I will. I was happy to chill in my corner, stay crouched, cast reflect, and just be like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> you can't touch this. Karak. Literally, I guess his name is Karak. Sounds about um, sounds about right to me. Is yeah, <laughs> it was a so a rare moment of feeling completely overpowered. Uh like. When I first saw this boss sprite, I was like, oh, shit, this is a scary looking boss. I am terrified of what it's going to do to me. Um, and it's it's kind of this weird, almost like. Uh, it feels like a different art style than the lot of the rest of the game, almost like it's more illustrative. Um, converted to pixels rather than I get that. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm describing that super well, but like, no, I, I it's got shady. Yeah, I got you. Well, because it's got like uh, it's got like it's got like folds in the cloth and stuff. I mean, it's definitely a yeah. It's definitely a much more like Castlevania looking enemy than anything we fought yeah. so far. Um, have you noticed that it looks exactly like the the art of the evil wizard from the Legend of Zelda backstory in the Adventure of Link manual? I actually was going to say the same thing. It, it is. It is almost I, I was wondering if they might have been the same character until I remembered that the evil wizard died. <laughs> or did he? Yeah, did, yeah, maybe not. Uh, I posted a link to the, the manual in the chat, but yeah, I'm sure you, you'll you look later or whatever. But yeah, it looks very similar to that art. So I've always thought that was kind of this cool. Like, is he is it him? Uh, did the king imp- like <laughs> I don't know, imprison him and oh wait, no, that's the timeline. I was about to say that stuff. the king was dead already, unfortunately, because I, I had the same thought and then quelled it with, oh yeah, the king was already dead. Well never mind, it can't be him. This is this is October, so this is our this is our spooky Halloween Zelda story of the week. <laughs> it's like the wizard was dead, or was he? 
He was resurrected and then imprisoned in Palace Number Five. Some nights on a clear, cold day, people still say they can hear the wizard. <laughs> Or something. I'm bad <laughs> at ghost stories. Say, you, you, you stumbled through that one. I that fell. That like, fell. You, that you, fell you. apart in a big way, very quickly. I'm not proud of it. I'm going to leave it in because I feel that accountability is important for a content creator. So here it is. It witnessed my shame, everybody. Um, no, yeah, I, I, I think that that you know, who's to say? But I definitely agree with you, Max, that the art style of this boss is is really cool. Um, I think that's uh, definitely a step up in that regard over the boss from the previous dungeon, which was just, you know, a reused enemy on a uh, on a hover bike. So uh, I, but know, you- I kind of like Robo Horse. Robo Horse was cool. OK. All right. Well, you know, well, I didn't like the boss, but I thought Robo Horse as a singular piece of that boss. Robo Horse was cool. Well, to each their own, and I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't like, Matt. That's uh, that, is, <laughs> that is not my job, and I'm not I'm not willing to take that responsibility onto myself. Uh, do either of you have anything else that you want to say about these dungeons before we move into the lightning round, where we cover the last three parts of the Sacred Realms rundown in rapid <laughs> succession? <laughs> Sorry, this always happens to me. Uh, I do not have anything else. Uh, the boots are cool. Being able to walk on lava. I like that. What? That's, that's what they do. Yeah. Did you not listen to the plot recap, Lyndon? You can walk on water and on lava. It's dope. What? So, like, you don't. So the lava pits are no longer insta kill. I don't know if they like permanently allow you to walk or just for like a short period of time. But yeah, you can walk over water and lava, including like I read a section on ZeldaDungeon.net while writing the plot recap about. If you do get a game over, you can easily get back to the fifth palace without traversing the whole maze just by walking across the river. You don't have to use the raft? No, you have to use the raft to traverse like large bodies of water, but like the small rivers that have like little like in the maze. Like, you know, there's there's that small section of river where you just walk over a like five pixel bridge. So it's the it's it's the ladder, basically. Yeah, more or less, except it only works on water and lava, not over um, bottomless pits. Gotcha. I had no idea what these things did. I was assuming that I would figure it out next week, but cool. That's neat. I'm a fan of walking on lava. You know? Yeah, it's like the hover boots. Okay. Well, there you go. I have I have obtained knowledge. Thanks, y'all. All right, let's go ahead and move into uh, the lightning round in which we move through parts four, five, and six in rapid succession uh, because there's really not too much to talk about here, and we spent a whole lot of time talking about other things. So that's just kind of the way that we do this for these older games. Uh, part five, of course, is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. Matt, you go first. Any Bloopy Trails worth mentioning, and it is okay, Up, just going to say this up front to both of y'all, it is okay if you didn't Bloopy Trail. <laughs> the only thing I have is I found another creepy Link doll on accident. Okay. Cool. Uh, other than that, everything else felt like it was part of the mainline quest, like getting the downward thrust, the upward thrust, and all the spells. Like, you have to do that to complete the section, so I, I don't feel like those are Bloopy Trails anymore. Agreed. How about yourself, Max? Um, I, uh, I guess most of what I did was also golden path. Uh, there I said, I had a fun time kind of exploring around, um, the area around, uh, I think it's the brew. 
the first town on the new continent. Yes, that is Naboru. Um, because I, I saw that River Devil and I was like obsessed. I was like, this has got to be where I need to go. Uh, and I spent a long time like exploring around, trying to go over every tile on the map, looking for that secret area. Um, turns out that just wasn't where I should go yet. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of an interesting thing to see this like monster sprite on the the overworld that we don't really see anywhere else. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, so, uh, that's my blue betrayal. Yeah, no, uh, that's good. I mean, similar to you, Matt, it, it really mine just comes down to I found an extra thing. Uh, I tracked down the uh, magic container that you can get in the maze. So that was nice. My magic meter is now longer and I, I appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everything else is, it really just honestly falls under the umbrella of things that you have to do to beat this section of the game. So with that being said, let's move on to part five, which is Z targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. And let's just go in the same order. Matt, you can Z targeting first. Um, well, I'm, I'm just going to have to take the blue iron knuckle before anybody else does, because absolutely that enemy i hate it in every possible way it will live in infamy even more so than greg the block or igor the block or i don't know pick your poison hate it i just appreciate your ability to uh to take an expletive and give it about double the syllables that it normally should have (laughs) you're gonna have to have an extra long bleep on that one i've got i've got a few choice ones don't you worry i'll figure it out I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> you should be. All right. The uh, the blue iron knuckle may may they live in infamy. Um, I, I still think maybe not quite the the personality that we got from Greg the Block, who truly was a was a main character. Of, <laughs> he was uh, really a son of a bitch. But yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the blue iron knuckles, man. Yeah. Uh, Max, how about yourself? Uh, I really wanted to pick a, a villager, but none of them are sticking out in my mind. There's a bunch of weird one-liners with those villagers. Um, <laughs> things that if someone actually said them to you on the street, you you would be like, what's going on with this dude? Um, <laughs> I know nothing. I am going to pick the strange child that was kidnapped and like held in a cave uh, and looks like a Link doll. When you at first, when you see it, I found it without realizing I was going in to rescue the child. I'm like, what is this thing I picked up? Um, but hey, you uh, you know, you did it. You did a good deed. You know that that child was being guarded by a very fearsome minotaur thing, which I actually thought was pretty cool that there was a minotaur in the maze. You know, I don't know if that's what that yeah. enemy actually was. Or if that's what it was supposed to be, but uh, yeah, yeah. Why the child was abducted? Who can who can say really? But uh, apparently, in the Japanese version, the child is tied up with ropes, and you need to hit it with your sword to free it. Um, and they changed that in the U.S. version, so you just run into them and you pick them up. It was uh, just a little too violent for Western we audiences. To get rid of the child sorting. that's fair uh okay so max has the kidnapped child i'm gonna go with the woman in uh naburu town who uh oh no 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 it's in i know she's in mido i think anyway it's the woman who says she has a sick child and she needs the water of life in order to heal this child right 
And so you run off to a cave and you find the water of life. This seems like a pretty powerful and useful thing to just have around. Um, you bring it to this woman who says, great, thank you. You can come into my house now. Except you go into the house and there's no sick child. There's just an old man who teaches you a spell. So I'm trying to figure out, did the sick child ever even exist? Or or did this old woman just like run off somewhere and guzzle the water of life? And I don't know, maybe like dropped a few pounds or something. Like I, I, I'm just very confused uh, because I was really looking for some catharsis here you know i wanted some emotional payoff i wanted to feel like i had done something good but i don't know i just i feel like i was i feel like i was had curing grandma's arthritis is a good deed well she could have just told me though like that's the thing (laughs) you know there was no need for lies maybe she's one of those people who turns into a bat when you talk to them and she just managed to hide it long enough to trick you Uh, that's great so i just passed off the water of life to ganon's minions Oh man, would they would they then use that on Ganon's uh, gore bones? That's <laughs> what they need to mix with Link's ashes. Yeah. <laughs> Together they form a paste. Oh no! <laughs> Gross! <laughs> no! <laughs> Ew! It's the uh, fabled resurrection paste. <laughs> oh, there you go, Head Cannon. I love it. Uh, Uh, This is the official Sacred Realms pod explanation for how one brings Ganon back to life. It's the it's the the dark paste. All right. Uh, Okay. Cool. Uh, Let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts, in which we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. Matt, it's all you. So this section of game starts out pretty strong until we get into our fourth dungeon where we meet the absolute nemesis of all existence, uh, culminating in a fairly satisfying, interesting boss fight. Um, we get an awesome, uh, item in the raft that allows us to open up a whole new, we'll call it subcontinent, uh, for exploration. Something that this game has kind of been short on, which is really, really fantastic and kind of comes at a much needed place that, breathe some new life into the game for for all of us um we continue the section into the maze and the and dungeon five which are really true high points of the game so far i think this section of the game ends on a really strong note with uh heavily expanding link's magical arsenal as well as some uh really interesting exploration and uh dungeon diving that uh was pretty enjoyable all the way around uh, we continue to see some frustration with the a uh, famine economy of uh, you know low magic drops and health being difficult, but uh, overall, um, think that we are kind of coming to a stronger point in the game and looking forward to uh, finishing up our final two palaces and moving on to uh, Death Valley in the next couple of episodes. Well done, Matt. And I ju- I just want to say that I think uh, I think famine economy is going to become one of our buzz terms for the remainder of this game. I th- that was uh, that was really well dropped there, Max. I, I you know I I think that that's very accurate of, of kind of the minute to minute experience of this game, and I think we're going to get a lot of mileage out of that term. So there you go. Hmm. Appreciate it. 
Uh, but as always, well, well done on wrapping up the final thoughts there, Matt. That brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown. We will be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown where we will talk about two more dungeons. We will get further into this game. Uh, there's going to be a lot more to talk about and a lot more to discuss. That brings us pretty close to the end of this episode. Um, it's getting pretty late over here. Uh, uh, you know, as as promised at the beginning of this episode, we have once again embarked upon a two-hour bonanza experience. So that just seems to be what we do these days. <laughs> who, know, who knows if it'll ever get shorter? I don't know. We have a lot to talk about. Sorry about that, y'all. Uh, but also very grateful to have had Max on to really kind of hash some of this stuff out with us. Um, because one of the things I love about having you on Max is that you're able to frequently give, uh, terms to a lot of the things that we're kind of thinking and feeling. Um, your expertise is, is actually very invaluable and kind of like breaking down, um, you know, thoughts and opinions about about these games and the choices that they make. So really appreciate that and really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, as always, it's it's a blast for me. It's always the highlight of my week. Uh, also, I cannot wait to tell you more about uh, why I think the combat in this game is very similar to Skyward Swords next time I'm on. So <laughs> stay tuned. Can't wait. Max. <laughs> yeah. No. In an, in an interesting way. Probably. See, Matt. <laughs> see, Matt thinks that you're sitting here trolling him for for lols, but I think you actually have a point to make. So I'm. Oh yeah, no, I, I can back this up. Okay, I'm ready for All it. Right. Can't can't wait to All get right. to it. If you see, say so. See, Matt, you thought you were getting picked on, but really, really, there's a there's a nugget there's a nugget of gold here that we're going to uncover in a later episode. It's going to be a really good time. All right, I think uh, I think we're about ready to get out of here. Max, real quick before we do that, would you just go ahead and let everybody know where they can follow you and uh, where they can check out the um, where they can check out the uh, Hyrule interviews work that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I maintain a database of interviews with all members of the Zelda development team over the years. In, in theory, we want to collect every interview that has ever happened, which is not a thing we're going to succeed at. Uh, I keep saying we, so far it's just me. I'll, f- I'll find other volunteers someday. Um, you can find my database at HyruleInterviews.com, or you can find us on Twitter where I post daily tweets, uh, daily quotes, rather, from these interviews uh, at Hyrule Interview. No S. Um, and uh, that should be of interest to anyone who just wants to know more about what's going through Zelda creators' heads as they design these games. Yep, absolutely. Uh, definitely go give that a uh, a like and a follow. Go check that out. It's going to be an excellent resource. Um, again, Max is frequently dropping a lot of this wisdom on us during the course of, of these episodes, but uh, that is barely scratching the surface of um, the the depth of like perspective and historical knowledge that is available um, over at Hyrule Interviews. So go check that out. It's an, it's a, it's a really an incredible project that he's undertaking. So, uh, Max, we definitely support you in that. Um, consider us, uh, consider us volunteers in spirit, if not in doing actual work. (laughs) Uh, thank you for your help. Oh, you know, anytime it's, it was a struggle, (laughs) but we're here for you. Um, cool, cool. Uh, Matt, I think we have a five-star review that we want to read right, uh, real quick before we get out of here. Yeah. Absolutely. So just a reminder to everybody that we appreciate all the five-star reviews. We are 
uh, over a hundred on the five star reviews now, which is really awesome. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, letting us know how much you've been enjoying the pod uh, as much as we've been enjoying making it. So uh, thank you, everybody. This one comes from Stephanie Lynn. She says, if you're ever looking for a Zelda podcast that breaks everything down from dungeons to the music, characters, side quests, and more, this is the podcast for you. I have a deep love for the Zelda games. I appreciate the time and effort that is put into this podcast. My most favorite Zelda game is Twilight Princess, Breath of the Wild, as it was tough to just choose one. Least favorite Phantom Hourglass is I kept rage quitting at the Temple of the Ocean King, but I recommend this podcast to everyone who loves and appreciates the Zelda games just like you guys do. So thank you for this podcast. Thank you, Stephanie, for leaving us a good five-star review and for being part of our uh, wonderful community over on Discord and Patreon. Thank you for uh, all the uh, insights and uh, in- inputs that you have uh, in both of those places. So uh, thanks, everybody else who's left five-star reviews. And please keep doing it. Uh, that's one way that we continue to get higher on the podcast uh, ranking and uh, more people see our show that way. And that's uh, that's exactly what we need and uh, to keep growing the community and growing the pod. So. Uh, yep. Thanks, everybody. Absolutely. Uh, y'all's time is very valuable, and we appreciate very much that you might ever choose to spend a chunk of it writing a review and posting it about our show. We appreciate that very much, and uh, it means more to us than you will ever know um, because we never really expected this to go anywhere, and it's it's definitely gone some places. So um, that's a, that's an incredibly gratifying feeling, honestly. Like we We feel very blessed by the community that we have. Um, they're, they truly are made up of excellent people. All right. I think it's time to get out of here. Sound good, Matt? Let's do it. It's getting late. It's getting late. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it is not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on The Adventure of Link, Chapter 4, which is going to cover another two dungeons. And crap, which two dungeons is are those? I think there's – one of them has three eyes. Uh, crap, where's Josh's document? Uh, hmm. Seriously, uh, this is a good time to mention that we would have been completely lost in this whole process without Josh from Zelda Universe who – you could also look on our Twitter where it's our pinned tweet and our nice. next two palaces are Palace on the Sea and Three-Eyed Rock Palace. There you go. We'll be playing those two palaces next week. So that is what you've got to get caught up on if you want to do some podcast homework. Of course, The Adventure of Link can be played in a variety of places. It can be played on the original NES. It can be played on the NES Mini. It can be played on a variety of eShops, uh, at least the ones that are still up and running. And it can be played on the Nintendo Switch Online NES service, which is the version that Matt and I are playing. <laughs> Not the version that Max is playing. <laughs> to play the version <laughs> that Max is playing... Just do a little Google, and I'm sure you'll figure it out. And it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. We do not judge you. (laughs) We truly do not. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch y'all next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. 
Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!